What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the MMA meeting. Let's talk with the Weasel Podcast, where we talk all things MMA. And I hope you guys are having an amazing day. This podcast is going to be on all platforms. And if you want any extra podcast episodes, you could join my Patreon or join as a member of this channel, where you get an extra podcast episode every single week. And let's talk about some fights here. So, nothing in the news, really, but we do know who Hamza Shemaev is fighting next. He's going to be fighting Li Jing Liang, which is... Something I didn't really expect, but it does make sense that they made it. We all thought it was going to be Neil Magny, who has been calling out Hamza Shemaev for a while. I don't know why he wasn't able to take the fight. I don't know if he turned it down. I don't know if Hamza Shemaev turned it down because we didn't know Hamza as the guy to fight anybody, anywhere, anytime. But he turned down Luke Rockhold at middleweight, and that was a big opportunity for him. I get how it's a smart decision for him. He doesn't want to fight such a big guy like Luke Rockhold coming off the whole thing with COVID, you know? And he wants to focus himself at welterweight at the moment. So it honestly does make sense, but the guy that we knew that would fight anybody, anywhere... Probably isn't really Hamza Shemaev. But all in all, Hamza versus Li Jing Liang is a very good fight. It's going to test Hamza's skills because it's a big jump in competition. Li has deceptive power. He's very good on his feet. He has good takedown defense. He's a crafty veteran in the game. He's going to be able to test Hamza Shemaev 100%. But even though Li's takedown defense is solid, I just don't know if he's ready to stop the takedowns from Hamza Shemaev. If Hamza goes and wins that fight, he 100% deserves a top 15 spot, being the number 12 ranked fighter. And after that, a Neil Magny fight makes sense. He goes and beats Neil Magny, then he's going to have to need a top 5 opponent. But man, when I think about it, it is a fast track to the top 5. I mean, Li Jing Liang is a top 15 fighter, Neil Magny is number 8. He beats a top 5 opponent, let's say like Leon Edwards or Steven Thompson. They're going to give him a title shot very soon after that. And the guy currently only has 9 professional fights in his career. So after 12 or 13, they give him a title shot? It's possible Cody Garbrandt did it. He did it with fewer fights. Chris Wyman did it when he fought Anderson Silva. Dominic Reyes fought John Jones with like 10 professional fights as well. It's definitely possible. But a young 27-year-old, it is going to be pretty fast. But if you're someone who follows patterns, look at all of those other previous title contenders who were undefeated and had less than 15 professional fights who fought the dominant champion of their division. Cody Garbrandt fought the greatest bantamweight of all time, Dominic Cruz. Chris Lyman fought the greatest middleweight of all time, Anderson Silva, who seemed unstoppable. Dominic Reyes fought John Jones, who also seemed unstoppable. And those undefeated young prospects were all of those dominant champions hardest competition those are difficult fights for them and it's possible that Hamza Shemaev might be the guy or Shafkat Rachmanov or any of these younger undefeated prospects they could be Kamar Usman's most difficult challenge in this division not Colby Covington not Gilbert Burns not Jorge Mazadal. it might be these younger 26 to 28 year olds who are rising the ranks and speaking of prospects, we do have Islam Makashev fighting this weekend. He's going to be fighting Thiago Moises. And I suspect that that'd be a very, not difficult fight, but a good experience for both guys. Thiago Moises is absolutely no joke. I know everybody's very high on Islam Makashev, but do not count out Thiago Moises at all. He has good jiu-jitsu and he's very crafty and long on the feet. But regarding guys like Islam Makashev for the lightweight division, it's going to come time very soon when these younger prospects overtake the Justin Gages of the world, the Dustin Poirier's of the world, Charles Oliveira's of the world, all the top guys in the division right now, it's going to come very soon where these younger prospects are going to take over their spots. And I think the takeover is going to be sooner than people think. I just recently released what I think the lightweight division should look like in terms of skills and talent compared compared to what the UFC rankings are right now. So this is how the UFC rankings look. Charles Oliveira is the champion. So we'll say he's number one. 
Dustin Poirier is number two, Justin Gaethje, Benil Dariush, Michael Chandler, Tony Ferguson, and then Conor McGregor is number seven. I agree that the three top guys should be in that top three. Oliveira, Poirier, and Gaethje, I believe right now, are the best fighters in this division. And there might be a little bit of a gap after that. But after the top three, I don't really agree with the skill discrepancy between number four, five, six, and seven. This is how I see the rankings in terms of skills. Dustin Poirier right now, I believe, is the best fighter. Him and Charles Oliveira are, like, exchangeable. You can put Charles as number one. You can put Dustin as number one. They're pretty even, in my opinion. I believe Justin Gaethje is number three. I believe Islam Makashev right now is number four. We're gonna have to see how he does this weekend to determine if he's not ranked at the top seven like people believe, or he's even ranked higher than number four. It's gonna be pretty hard to prove that when he fights Thiago Moises, but his grappling and wrestling definitely are toward the top of this entire division. It's gonna be very hard for anybody to outgrapple him. Oliveira's there, but pretty much no one else can do it. Armin you can definitely put up a good challenge. Islam also has very good striking defense. He has a really good right high kick as a southpaw. His boxing skills have been tuned up and he's much more aware in the octagon than he has been before. So he's extremely well-rounded with the best wrestling slash grappling mix-up in the entire division. Then I believe Michael Chandler stays at number five. It's a pretty iffy spot for him because he's only fought twice in the UFC. It's very possible that he gets shut out out of the whole top seven. He doesn't have the greatest cardio. He's also not the greatest striker technically. He goes for like the same three to four techniques in every single fight, but his high horsepower allows him to get away because opponents are just kind of hesitant of engaging with him. One punch from Chandler and it's over. But the guy is an extremely good wrestler and an amazing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu artist as well. Because of that, that's the main reason why I put him at number five. He could shut out most of the wrestlers and most of the grapplers. Where he will have trouble with a lot of the strikers. But then again, if he goes his offensive wrestling route, let's say if he fights someone like a Conor McGregor or a Tony Ferguson these days, he should be able to take him to the ground and dominate for those first few rounds. Then number six. I have Rafael Fiziev. He's extremely underrated, and I understand he's very young in the game. He only has four fights in the UFC. He's currently on a three-win streak. His last one, a big knockout over Hanato Moicano, who's doing very well these days. But I do believe he's one of the better strikers in this division right now, currently. He's probably the fastest guy in the division in terms of hand speed and kicking speed. He has crushing power with his hands, a slick switch kick, and he has great takedown defense, man. He's hard to get control of. The only thing that goes against him kind of is he becomes a little bit too lax from a distance and he gets caught by long range jabs or long range straights. But after getting caught by like the first one, he adapts quickly and starts slipping on your punches, countering you with his overhands and his left hooks. His body shots are vicious as well. And if you really think about any fighter who can take advantage of some of those weaknesses, who have a very long, precise jab or attacks from far using their straights. You do have Charles Oliveira, who has probably the best jab in the division right now. Extremely snappy with it. He could take advantage of some of Fiziev's weaknesses from a distance. Theoretically, you do have Tony given his style, but he's not the same guy these days. Fiziev will tear him apart. You do have Conor McGregor with that long left straight. He doesn't throw many jabs, but the power in his left hand could potentially catch Fiziev and potentially hurt him. You have Dan Hooker, who has a good jab, a good cross, and that's pretty much it. I mean, Thiago Moises is there as well, but he doesn't have the best jab in the world. He fought Hinata Moikano, who has a good jab, and had to deal with that, getting caught by the the one and the combination of a one-two from a distance, but he adapted in the fight very quickly. He went to the body with a left hook, right overhand over the top, and then left hook to the jaw to end it. So he does adapt to that weakness of his very, very quickly. But if you think about it, who else in this division has that kind of strength from a distance 
to attack him with these jabs and crosses and teeps. Dustin Poirier doesn't fight like that. Dustin Poirier likes to get in on you. Justin Gaethje, same thing, likes to get in on you or he creates distance for you to fall into his hooks. But Neil Dariush, overhands, stuff like that. Michael Chandler, overhands. Huffa Dos Angels, same sort of thing. He has a good jab, but he's very short with it. He's not going to be able to catch Vizia from a distance. Islam Makashev has a decent jab, I guess, but he doesn't attack in that sort of way. Kevin Lee has a pretty good jab. I think he can catch someone like Fiziev the first few times he throws it, but I think because Kevin Lee is so one-dimensional on his feet and he's rather static in his movements, Fiziev will be able to create angles and catch him over the top. Brian Riddell has an okay jab, but mostly looks for that big right hand of his. Armin Saryuki and Diego Fajeda are not really there as well. So there are a select few of fighters who can really take advantage of Fiziev's weaknesses, but most of them cannot. And most of them do not want to go in a firefight with someone like Fiziev. Michael Chandler can, Justin Gaethje can, but most of the other guys do not want to get in that kind of brawling exchange with such a technical striker who greatly overwhelms them with speed and precise shot selections. And then number seven, I have Armin Saryuki, and he could be exchangeable with Rafael Fiziev, I believe. He's also one of the best grapplers in this division. He's going to be very hard for anybody to outgrapple him and out-wrestle him. I believe only Islam Makashev, maybe Charles Oliveira, and potentially Michael Chandler for the first few rounds can stop his takedowns or challenge him in the grappling. Armand Saryukin is also extremely strong in the clinch. He muscles through many fighters in this division, and his kicks are so sneaky, man. Those high kicks of his come out of nowhere. The issue right now with Armand Saryukin is his boxing seems a bit stiff. He likes to jab and use his left hook as a counter, but right now, he doesn't seem confident in his right hand. If he fine-tunes his boxing a bit, he will 100% be a top-five fighter in this division. But the guy's only, like, what, 23 years old? The fact that he's even ranked in the top 15 is crazy. And if you think that's crazy that someone like Armin is already ranked in the top 15, I already put out what I think the lightweight division is going to look like four years from now. Most of the fighters you see today are probably not even going to be ranked in the top seven. The only guy I could potentially see is Charles Oliveira for the fact that he's a little bit younger. He heavily excels in his wrestling and grappling, something similar to what Glover Teixeira is doing today. And he's going to be able to do that to some of the guys who cannot stop his takedowns, keeping them potentially in the top five, if not top seven. But this is how I see the top seven. I see Islam Makhachev as the champion. Rafael Fiziev is the number one contender. Armin Saryukin is the number two contender. Then Charles Oliveira, Guram Katalidze, Matthews Gamrot, and then maybe and Zaitar, it could be other guys like Brad Riddell. Pretty much, this division is going to be competitive for a long time, man. I potentially see Dustin Poirier retiring by then. I see Justin Gaethje fighting, but he's going to take so much damage. He's going to be long in the tooth. He's going to be much older. I mean, 36, 37 years old by that time. He's definitely not going to be able to keep up. But Neil Dariush also going to be very old. He's definitely going to get kicked out of the top seven. Michael Chandler is going to retire by then. Tony Ferguson is going to be retired. Conor McGregor is going to be retired. Even if they weren't, I don't see them competing with these guys. None of them. The only guy that possibly would, if he would not retire by that time, might be Dustin Poirier. He would potentially be able to compete with most of these younger prospects who are eventually going to take over this lightweight division. And it's pretty funny because most of the guys that are rising the ranks and are the future of this division are guys from Eastern Europe, which is something that doesn't normally happen in the UFC. You don't usually see many Eastern Europeans all in one division like this. And that goes to show you how fast this division has been developing over the years. It proves that everybody, even the older guys, need to constantly be training and competing to catch up with how fast the rotations are. You cannot be inactive. Solely being like a year to two years inactive in this division is enough to put you in the back of the line. There's a valid reason why this division is the most stacked division in the UFC. And it's the most exciting division in the UFC because guys keep coming in. New talent keep entering the door and they quickly adapt to the competition level. The Makashevs, the Fizievs, the Saryukians, the Guroms, the Gamrods, the Riddells, these guys are going to take over the lightweight division very, very soon.
But speaking of divisions, have you guys ever thought about what the weight classes would look like if the fighters were not allowed to cut any weight? They had to fight what they walked around at. It's actually quite shocking how the weight classes would look if every single fighter would fight at their natural weight. Instead of weight bowling, using PEDs to get to a certain weight class, nearly killing themselves for it and all that stuff. For an example, guys like Paulo Costa and Michelle Pereira would go up to heavyweight. Yes, Paulo Costa is a middleweight and Michelle Pereira is a welterweight. They would both be competing with guys like Stipe Miocic, Surreal Gone, etc. At light heavyweight, you'll have guys like Darren Till and Michael Chiesa. Of course, everybody knew Darren Till walks around on 205 pounds, but Michael Chiesa, he's 188 pounds on fight night, let alone what he walks around at, which is of course going to be heavier. You're also going to have Drew Dober up there in light heavyweight as well, who currently fights at lightweight. The guy weighing 183 pounds on fight night, and of course is going to be heavier for his walk around weight. In the middleweight division, this is where it gets pretty crazy. You'll have guys like Dustin Poirier in there. You'll have guys like Brian Ortega, who weighs exactly 185 pounds. And you potentially have Kamaru Usman. So you'll see numbers that says Usman weighs 185 pounds. Some say 190 pounds. But the fact that Usman, Ortega, and Poirier, and Max Holloway, Darren Elkins will also be in the middleweight division. Mursad Bektik will also be in the middleweight division. Alexander Volkanovsky will be in the middleweight division. Actually, Volkanovsky will be a super heavyweight if we take his rugby days. I mean, I heard the guy weighed like 400 pounds so he'll be fighting Hong Men Choi and Brock Lesnar and those guys but yeah middleweight would be super stacked with all different kinds of fighters who currently compete in different divisions and then the welterweight division at 170 you have Conor McGregor who walks around about 170 Muller Marais who's currently a bantamweight and even Davison Figueredo who will be on the smaller side at 170 he wouldn't be able to weigh 170 he'll be like in the low 160s but because he's in the low 160s, he would have to fight at welterweight. Which means, let's line it up. Conor McGregor versus Davison Figueredo. Imagine that's the fight that would have to go down. Conor would have to fight Figueredo. Brian Ortega would have to fight Kamaru Usman. Michelle, Michelle Pajeda would have to fight Surreal Gone. It's actually mind-boggling. Doesn't even seem real when you think about how the divisions will look if nobody cut weight. But with all that, we're going to go right to the questions here. And for our first questions, we're going to start with some of our patrons and members here. First question by Daniel Sandoval. Hey Weasel, how do you see a Tony Ferguson versus Conor McGregor fight going at in 155 and 170? Also, Prime 145 Conor versus Top 5 145ers today. Love the content, man. Keep it up. I can't wait for the face reveal if you ever do one. Thank you so much, man. So, Conor versus Tony, I'm going to have to go with Conor. Tony is just not himself at all. Tony is very gun-shy. He doesn't attack. He just stays on the defense for the most part. And I don't think he's confident in his chin. And there's a possibility he shows the same kind of reaction if he gets hit that he showed when Justin Gaethje was hitting him, like turning away, running away from the punishment, all that stuff. So I definitely would go with Connor at 155 and 170. But prime 145 Connor versus the top 145ers today. I honestly think Connor should go back down to 145 if it's possible for him. I don't think 155 is for him. I think the 155ers are a little bit too big, too strong, and too good. That division is way too stacked. So, Connor versus Kelvin Cater, I'm going to go with Connor. Connor versus Chan Sung Jung, I'm going to go with Connor McGregor, but that would be a very competitive fight. Connor versus Yair, I'm going to go with Connor. That's not as competitive. Connor versus Brian Ortega, I'm going to go with Brian Ortega. Connor versus Max Holloway, I'm going to go with Holloway. And Connor versus Volkanovski, I'm going to go with Volkanovski. I then go to Kinu 17. Volkanovski said if he's done at featherweight, he'll move up to lightweight. How do you see him competing against the top five in that division? I think he beats Tony Ferguson. I think he loses to Michael Chandler. I think he beats Benil Dariush. I think he loses to Justin Gaethje, loses to Dustin Poirier, and loses to Charles Oliveira. 
So he would be somewhat competitive, just not the best guy. Then we go to Jesse Griffin. How does this tournament go? Round by round breakdown, please. I don't know by round by round breakdown, but uh, let's see here. Left side bracket, Liddell versus Shogun, Couture versus Rampage, and then the right side is Ortiz versus Vanderlei and Belfort versus Arona. And they're all in their primes. You're the man with the best MMA breakdowns, bar none. Thank you so much, brother. And P.S., you're all crazy if you think UFC won't make Pori versus McGregor 4 for the lightweight title if Dustin beats Oliveira. There's a lot of money to be made in that fight. So let's see here. I think... um. Shogun beats Liddell. The light kicks ultimately are going to be a deciding factor. And Liddell's boxing defense is not necessarily there. Shogun is a lot better defensively. And Shogun is pretty fast as well. So definitely going to go Shogun against Liddell. Couture versus Rampage. That might be the most competitive fight out of all of these. But Prime Rampage, there's a bit of a debate about it. Some people think it was uh, the later end of Pride. And some people think uh, when he won the UFC title. I'm going to go with the UFC title version of Rampage. He fought a little bit differently. More of a sprawl and brawl. And he was very powerful even in close ranges. Where Couture really liked the fight. Especially with his dirty boxing in the clinch. So I'm going to go with Rampage. I think Rampage knocks out Couture. Now Ortiz versus Vanderlei. We kind of saw that fight already. So I'm going to go with Ortiz. Wrestles his way to a victory. Belfort versus Arona. You do know what prime version of Belfort we're talking about here. We're talking about TRT Vitor Belfort here. Belfort destroys Arona. Disintegrates Arona. Head kicks him into oblivion. So that would mean Shogun versus Rampage Jackson. We saw that fight already too, man. Shogun beats Rampage. The kicks are too much. The knees in the clinch. I'm gonna go with Shogun Hua. Ortiz versus TRT Vitor. Ortiz is gonna get knocked out. Out. I mean, they fought in the past, and I'm pretty sure Belfort was on something when they fought at UFC 51. I mean, the guy was jacked out of his mind, but with the more modern skills that he developed, I mean, he almost knocked out Tito Ortiz a few times in that fight. He stuffed most of the takedowns, and Ortiz didn't have the best entries. He led with a blitz using his hands, very vulnerable, no power in those, but ultimately just a setup for the double leg takedown. Wasn't really working too much against Vitor, and I definitely don't think it will work against TRT Vitor with 2013 modern techniques. Vitor knocks him out. And then all it comes down to Shogun Hua versus Vitor Belfort. Vitor knocks him silly, man. Shogun was way too plotting. He was much slower than Vitor. Hands were nowhere near as crisp. He lunged with his punches to get in close, and that would just ultimately get him countered by Vitor's left hand. So TRT Vitor, of course, would become the champion of that tournament. And then we go to Keon underscore. Have you ever been knocked out in sparring before? And have you knocked out a sparring partner? Have an awesome weekend, brother. Oh, thank you so much, man. So, no, I've never been knocked out or knocked anybody out. The furthest this ever went was... I got stunned once and I've rocked people before, but I never took it far enough to try to knock out the opponent or throw in 100% strikes. The biggest shot I ever took was probably a knee to the face. Got a broken nose because of that one. Uh, and also a flush right hook right to my eye and that one stunned me a bit. That was when I was pretty young. I was about 16 years old, 17 years old. That was the most I've ever gotten like wobbly. Creamy Zeus. How should I approach a fight with a taller fighter who stays outside with jabs and teeps? There's many ways you can approach that. Um, if you're a wrestler, they're throwing teeps, you can attempt to catch those. You can parry the jabs to make your way in, but you really want to mind your defense when you're trying to close that distance. But the key is you want to keep constant pressure, keep the guy backing up. And it also depends on your kind of style. Are you more explosive with your feet? Because then you could take more of a Chad Mendes route of staying on the outside a bit, moving around, but find your entry to explode. This usually comes with a counter. Let's say if you parry away the teep or parry the punch, you explode in. If you're more plodding in your footwork, maybe you can look at someone like Daniel Cormier, who keeps a constant pace, constant pressure on the opponent, and looks to just deflect all their shots and find that overhand or that hook or a jab to secure your close range entry so then you can land combinations on the inside instead of one big shot from a distance like someone like Chad Mendes would do.
And then we'll go to Scott Lindsay. Hey Weasel, how would you see Dustin Poirier vs. Justin Gaethje 2 going with Justin's more patient style? Also, how do you see Justin vs. Charles Oliveira playing out? I honestly believe Justin Gaethje is a very difficult fight for most of the top guys of this division right now. Dustin fought Justin, but that was when Justin had that war style. No patience at all, went after Dustin, leg kicking him, creating a lot of damage, and just brawling with him in the pocket, but he wasn't as technical as he is today. If he were to fight Dustin Poirier, I don't think he's covered the gap in the boxing. His footwork is going to allow him to get away from some of Dustin Poirier's lunging hooks, and potentially Gaethje from there can counter him with his own hooks. The leg kicks are always going to be a big factor because, again, Dustin doesn't check kicks, and Dustin is not going to be able to get Gaethje to the ground unless he rocks him first. And I just don't see that happening with Poirier. I don't see Poirier rocking Gaethje in the fight. So pretty much is the disciplined footwork enough for Gaethje to be able to counter Poirier in that mid-range distance. It might be enough for Gaethje to beat Poirier because from far range, Gaethje has those leg kicks. Dustin's going to have to move in. He can't stay on the outside. His leg is just going to get torn apart. So if Dustin wings in those hooks to get in on Gaethje, we all know Gaethje has faster feet. He should be able to move slightly back and then counter Poirier on those entries. So I do think Justin Gaethje would beat Dustin Poirier in a fight. But Poirier always finds a way to just mix up the game enough to tip the skills in his favor. And how do I see Justin versus Charles Oliveira going? I think Justin Gaethje might have the kryptonite style for Charles Oliveira. That all comes into play that Justin shuts down the wrestling. Because as we know, Oliveira does not move his head. He doesn't have the greatest chin. That is detrimental fighting a guy like Justin Gaethje. And Gaethje's not going to go down as easily as Michael Chandler did. Gaethje has an incredibly good chin. I do think early on in the fight, Gaethje's not going to be able to find Oliveira's chin that well because he does throw his hooks pretty short. But I think as the fight plays out and he gets the timing down of Oliveira, he should be able to block the kicks, enter behind those, and catch him with some of his hooks. Pretty much just punish Oliveira for most of his actions. So I absolutely can see Gaethje beating Oliveira. But it's entirely possible that Oliveira puts the jab on Justin Gaethje's face the entire fight, looks to counter him with his own longer left hook, and connects with his right straight as Gaethje looks to exit, using his footwork to create space. I think Oliveira and Gaethje is a very competitive fight. I slightly lean to Justin's side at the moment. And then we'll go to John Jordan. Was what Connor said before and after the last fight with Dustin over the line? The names he called Dustin's wife, the whole thing about stretchers, body bags, etc. I know the game involves trash talk, and they are just words in a sport that allows KOs and submissions. But what he says seems to be more offensive than those things. I don't think Dustin would have been as mad as getting beat as he is with what Connor said about his wife. Connor is the one letting it to be known that this goes beyond words. So is there any accountability for the fighter's say or is it all part of the game? It depends on the perspective. The opponent's perspective, the fan's perspective, and maybe... Some of the professionals on the site, such as the commentators and stuff like that. So, first of all, Dustin was not really mad for what Connor said about his wife. He said he was mad at Connor because he created death threats. He literally threatened Dustin and his wife's life when he was sitting there in the cage. He pretty much said he would end them in their sleep. And this is after the fight, and he brought in the wife with that. Now, I could kind of understand if he only talked about Dustin Poirier and didn't bring up his wife that he would do the same to her. And he also posted a picture of Dustin's daughter on Twitter and said Gonzo after that. That, I believe, is crossing the line. Because fighters all the time talk about, you know, killing their opponents and stuff like that. But that's usually actually before the fight. You don't hear that after the fight. The reason why this is a bit different is... The fight was over. Competition is done. Dustin is moving on to fight the champion, and Connor's going to be out for another year. What is the point of 
threatening Dustin Poirier to that extent. That wasn't fight promotion, as Ronda Rousey and Chill Sonnen were talking about. Conor was emotionally charged at the moment. It might be because he was in shock of what happened to his leg, but it looked like he knew what he was saying. It looked like he knew what he was doing out there. So you can give a little bit of leniency for him targeting Dustin with that threat. But the fact that he targeted the wife and then posted a picture of Dustin's daughter on Twitter, that's completely different now. And I do not blame Dustin at all for taking offense to that because that is not normal trash talk. It's never smart to not take death threats seriously, especially when it involves your family. And Connor's only going to take accountability if something happens to him from maybe the organization or something like that. But if nothing happens to him, he's going to keep doing this. But for some reason, a lot of fans and fighters and journalists and even MMA personalities, like I mentioned before, Chelsea and Ronda Rousey, there are mainstream journalists that cover all general sports that made it seem like it's no big deal at all. This is Conor McGregor. He's promoting a fight. That reminds me of when people thought him throwing a dolly at the bus and all the things he said to Habib were all just fight promotion when they clearly were not. I swear Conor can murder someone in broad daylight and they'll say he's promoting a fight. This is not the WWE. I understand it has pro wrestling antics, but nothing about this is faked. When Conor's throwing a dolly at a bus, when he's pushing refs, when he's punching old men in bars, when he's smashing fans' phones, when he's making death threats, when he's insulting people's religion and their ideals and their morals, I wonder when people are going to look at it for what it is. Instead of trying to create an excuse around it that Connor's, oh, he's not that bad. No, Connor's pretty vile, man. And I get it. People want to see the show. They don't want it to end. As gruesome as it can be sometimes, it's like that train wreck that you can't look away from. But there's no way to excuse what Connor is doing here. Because if you put yourself in that situation, right, let's say you fight Connor McGregor and after the fight you beat him and he starts threatening to kill you and your wife and then pulse your daughter on the internet and stuff. No, man, nobody's going to take that lightly. And we all know what would happen if they threatened Connor's wife or, you know, his daughters or something like that. He would go crazy, right? He's gone crazy for less. They would go to Mike McNeil. Hey, we is a longtime follower, but just officially joined the Weasel Gang. What do you think about Diaz calling out Dustin at 185 pounds? Dustin said that he would touch him up at any weight, and I would love to see that fight. But how do you think it would play out? Also, what do you think about Misha Tate's return in the UFC? She says she's planning on getting her title back from Nunez. Do you think she has any chance of giving Nunez problems? Thanks for the great content. Love the channel. Cheers. Oh, thank you so much for the question, man. So Dustin would tear apart Nate Diaz, in my opinion, at any weight. 185, 170, 155. He's a better boxer than Nate. He's more powerful than Nate. He's faster than Nate. He could take Nate down. He could leg kick him. He has five-round cardio. It's a tough fight for Nate Diaz, to be honest here. Nate makes things work as the fights play out, as we saw in his fight with Leon Edwards. And we did see Dustin get stunned badly when he fought Dan Hooker. When someone could take blows like a Nate or like a Hooker, that did not sound right. I'm sorry. Like Dan Hooker, Dustin will at times get himself in a firefight that he didn't need to get into. And there's a possibility there Dustin himself can get touched up. But I do see Dustin Poirier beating Nate Diaz for sure. And as for Misha Tate, I don't really know what I think about her uh, return to be honest here. I think she beats Renault because Renault's like, what, 43 years old and she's nearly done with fighting. But in terms of what she can do in the bantamweight division, because it's pretty shallow, I could see her being top five. But She's never going to beat Amanda Nunes. If she thought Nunes was hard the last time she lost to her, this Nunes is going to absolutely destroy Misha Tate. And then we move on to the public questions. We start with the most liked comment, Andre Rybikov. Let's pretend Connor did everything Dustin did to Connor. Connor rocks Dustin, Dustin goes for the clinch, Connor lands heavy ground upon, and Dustin breaks his leg. What would Connor's response be? What would Dustin's response be? And would there be a fourth fight? 
I honestly don't think Connor would go after Dustin the entire time. He would probably say something about, you know, the foundation or he deserved it or something of that manner. But I honestly don't think Connor would try to rub it in Dustin's face too much. Because usually when Connor defeats an opponent, he's on to the next thing at hand, right? He'd be thinking about Charles Oliveira. He'd be thinking about this or that. Dustin would be in the past already. This is how he's always operated. But due to his hatred for Dustin and the whole thing around their whole beef, he's going to make one quick zinger about Dustin and then move on putting the whole division on blast, calling everybody out, kind of similar to what he did with uh, the win over Donald Cerrone and Eddie Alvarez, and finish it with something like, you know, the King's back or something like that, you know? But for Dustin's response, he wouldn't really say anything. He would just say that's how the fight goes, man. It happens, legs break, all that stuff. Dustin would be a class act even in defeat against Conor McGregor. He would give him all the props to say Conor's the better man, all that stuff. There probably would not be any kind of death threats from either side and would there be a fourth fight no they would not be a fourth fight you think if that happened to dustin that they'll put connor up against them again no man connor's going up against charles Oliveira, and the ufc is going to think of their plans yet again for connor when he becomes a champ what can they do with him the whole thing comes back to circle and again it becomes the connor mcgregor show and then we go to smg who do you think is the most unorthodox fighter in each division and how do you think michael venom page would do in the ufc ps i'm a big fan and keep up the good work oh thank you so much man so the most unorthodox in the heavyweight division, I'd probably say is Alexander Volkov, but there's really not many unorthodox fighters at heavyweight. And the light heavyweight division is definitely Yuri Prohaska. Middleweight, it's Uriah Hall. Welterweight, it's Steven Thompson. Lightweight, it's Tony Ferguson. Featherweight, it's Yair Rodriguez. Bantamweight, Dominic Cruz. Flyweight, Matthews Nikolaou. Women's bantamweight, it's Holly Holm. Women's flyweight, it's Caitlin Chukagian. And women's strawweight, it's probably Mackenzie Dern. And how does Michael Page do in the UFC? He doesn't do that well. There's some stylistic matchups that would be interesting, like him versus Steven Thompson or like Muslim Masalikov potentially, but most of the guys will probably take him to the ground and dominate him. And I think they'll be able to counter him as he explodes his way in. Then we go to Hans. After Moutinho's performance, I'm curious to know who are some of the toughest cans in UFC history. Keep up the good work, your content is amazing. So I think Chris Moutinho has earned himself the title as the toughest can in UFC history. Because that guy's chin is something out of this world, man. A lot of people are starting to say that Sean O'Malley doesn't have power. No, Sean O'Malley has crazy good power. It's just that's how durable Chris Moutinho was. He's the only guy that was able to withstand that much damage from Sean O'Malley's shots. Nobody else was. And you know what? I'm not even going to say it's his chin. It was the mullet, 100%. Everybody with a mullet has a chin. It gives them like some kind of defensive power to be able to withstand otherworldly kind of damage. Top it off that it was like neon green. Of course Sean O'Malley wasn't going to knock him out. At that level, I don't even think Francis Agano would have phased him. But who are some other durable cans? We're going to give a shout out to Thomas Gifford. Extremely good chin. I mean, the damage he went through when he fought Mike Davis, insane. And another one was uh, Wesley Correra. He took a beating by Tim Sylvia, man, and just stayed in there until they had to stop the fight. Kind of similar to what happened to Chris Moutinho, but a heavyweight. And then we go to Anthony Ned. Armin Saryukian versus Top 15 and Umar Nurmagomedov versus Top 15. Armin Saryukin is number 15, so how does he fight Tiago Moises? So I think he beats Tiago Moises. I think he beats Brad Riddell. Very close fight, though. Beats Diego Ferreira. He beats Kevin Lee. Mostly on the feet. It's going to be hard to take down Lee. He beats Gregor Gillespie. Better grappler, better striker. Loses to Islam Makashev yet again. I think he beats Dan Hooker. Uses his wrestling to ride out a decision win. That's a very dangerous fight for Armin Saryukin. I think he beats Conor McGregor. Beats Havatos Anjos. Uses his wrestling in both those fights. Beats Tony Ferguson. Tony's just not the same anymore. Loses to Michael Chandler. Beats Benil Dariush. Loses to Justin Gaethje. Loses to Poirier and loses to Oliveira. So now Umar Nurmagomedov at bantamweight. 
I think he beats Cody Stamen, beats Kyler Phillips, beats Marlon Vera, beats Jimmy Rivera, beats Havala Sansal, beats Marab Dvajvili, beats Dominic Cruz. Ooh, Pedro Munoz. That's a difficult one. Ah, uh, that's an iffy. I don't know. Back and forth. The light kicks from Munoz, the power and close, his guillotine choke. He really can counter a lot of what Umar can do. You know what? I'm going to go with Umar. I trust his wrestling a little bit more. He beats Frankie Edgar. He beats Marlon Moraes, especially if it's five rounds. He loses the Cody Garbrandt, loses the Jose Aldo, beats Rob Font, beats Corey Sanhagen. That's a dangerous one on the feet, though. Loses the Piotr Jan and beats Eljamain Sterling. Then we go to Johnny Mirajkowski. How much of a step up should Ilya Tapuria take in his next outing? Tapuria versus Arnold Allen sounds intriguing, or do you think it's too soon of an opponent of that caliber? So Tapuria has officially been ranked number 15. Arnold Allen is number 6. Is that too big? I think so. I would love to see that fight because I do think that Ilya Taporia is going to be one of the best fighters in this division. But let's look at someone probably anywhere from number 12 to like number 8. For instance, i like to see him fight Sadiq Yusuf or even Bryce Mitchell. That would be an interesting fight for Ilya Taporia. Now, if they go the Arnold Allen route, I do think he's capable enough to handle himself with Allen. His wrestling is amazing. His Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is far superior than Allen's. He's more powerful than Allen is. And even technically in the striking, he should hold his own with Arnold Allen. The issue with fighting Allen right now is that if he goes and beats him, he's in the lion's den. And I don't think he's ready right now to fight guys like Max Holloway and Brian Ortega. So he should take it a little bit slower before fighting someone in the top seven. I honestly believe he can beat pretty much anybody from number 14 to number six. He has the skills and the well-roundedness to be at least competitive with all of these guys. Edson Barboza might be the one that's a little bit iffy. If Edson could stop the takedowns, Taporia might be in trouble. But if he fights someone like Shane Burgos, possibly Evoloev, Sadiq Yusuf, Bryce Mitchell, Shikadze, Ige, even Emmett and Allen, those are going to be difficult for him. These are all doable fights for Ilya Taporia. But as soon as he fights someone like Kelvin Cater or Korean Zombie, Yar Rodriguez, Brian Ortega, Max Halloween, Volkanovski, most of those guys he cannot take to the ground and they're superior strikers to him. They're better technically and they're all very powerful in their own right. Besides, I will say Holloway. And the last thing we want to see is Taporia being locked in the shark tank prematurely and getting torn apart by the big sharks in that division. Because let's be honest here, you don't just lose the Holloway. You don't just lose to Ortega or Korean Zombie or Kelvin Cater. These guys punish you badly. And if you cannot hold your own with them, you'll not leave the cage the same as when you entered it. Definitely do not want that for Taporia. So he's going to have to take it a bit slower. And then we go to Mateo Vila. Why is Robert Whitaker's 1-2 right high kick combo always effective? Especially considering the fact that his opponents must study how to defend it before their fight with him. Keep up the great work, Weasel. Much love from the land down under. Australia, man. Love you guys. It's almost like what happened with GSP. Everybody knew the double leg was coming. They just couldn't stop it. It's that technique that even though they're game planning for it, they drill against it for week after week. But when they're fighting the Reaper and he throws that combo at them, they just cannot get away from it. They can't defend it. They can't see it coming. It might be the speed, the angle that he throws that cannot be replicated in training perfectly, but there might be another reason for it. Robert Whitaker is tricky, man. He's so hard to prepare for because the things that he does at the speed that he operates, it's going to be very hard to mimic in training camp. Not a lot of guys can fight like Whitaker with the attributes that he has. He's insanely fast for middleweight. I mean, look when he actually goes and lands this combination. He's bouncing around and then suddenly explodes from that long range and lands the jab on them. This blitz catches them off guard every single time and they attempt to lean away from the offense. 
they were just getting blinded by that jab. The only guy that was really able to get away from this combination was Israel Adesanya, and even he almost got caught by it. The only reason why he did not get caught was because of how long he is. He's able to actually see things from a farther distance, making them a shorter Whitaker strikes with. It's possible they bring a lightweight or a welterweight to mimic his style, but is just a little bit different. The feints that he throws out there, the stutter steps, his movement, his blitz, he makes you think like he's gonna dart in at you. And notice when he throws that combination, when he throws the one, or sometimes the one-two, he gives a look like he's going to dart at you, like he's gonna blitz you down. But when he throws the hands, he changes the tempo with his right high kick. The jab comes out instantly. It's extremely explosive, and it gets him to react suddenly. But then when he throws the right high kick, he's not throwing it like a Muay Thai fighter. He kind of snaps it from his knee like a karate fighter would do. It's a very different kind of angle and a different kind of speed. When the knee comes up like he's going to throw the right high kick, some people don't even think the kick is going to come. They probably think it's just a knee. They probably think even sometimes the kick is going to come to the body like you could see with Kelvin Gaslam. Kelvin Gaslam thought it was going to come down to the body. He leans in on it and gets hit to the head. And even against Jared Kennanier, when you go and look at that sequence, he explodes on that jab so quickly that Kennanier didn't even expect it. Kennanier didn't even think he could tag him from that distance so quickly. So when he gets hit by the jab, he kind of panics with his defense and he just dips to his left and leans into the high kick. This happens with almost everybody. I think it's just that speed. They are so shocked at how fast Whitaker gets in on them. It's going to be very hard to mimic that in training without going full out, you know? And then we go to Mangy Mutt. All of us here are huge MMA nerds, but what interests and hobbies do you have outside of the sport? Any projects you've been working on lately? Thanks, Weasel. No, thank you so much for the question. Interesting here. So I tend to keep myself somewhat active, either physically or mentally. This comes with, of course, working out and training and all that stuff, but that's a little bit more inside the sport. I like to play other sports. I like to play football. I like to play baseball, volleyball during the summer. It's very fun. And really get some games going, even with people I don't know. But if I'm not doing something physically, something else I do, I write novels. I've actually been writing novels for the last, like, what, like seven years about? I've always been writing stories ever since I was a little kid. But mainly right now, I do it for myself. Probably in the future, I'll release and make it public. But man, there's just something else about just creating your own world, creating your own narrative characters, and bringing this all together in your own story. It really takes you away from like the real world and allows your creative mind to just expand. And honestly, I've never been more addicted to anything than writing novels. There was a point when I was first starting it, I spent like 10 to 12 hours every single day for the whole week just writing and typing. I had to remind myself, hey man, I gotta go eat. Hey man, I gotta go work out. And if I'm not doing that, I also like to play video games. A moderate amount of it, I think, is actually pretty healthy for you. It really can keep your brain sharp depending on the kind of games you play. I would think that, um, I think there's been studies that first-person shooting games help people to develop faster hand-eye coordination and reaction timing and all that stuff. And honestly, I'm pretty good at every game I've picked up. So if you guys want to verse me in any game, hit me up, man. I'm all for it. It could be the UFC video game. It could be the older Fight Night games. Those were the best combat sports games. Any kind of first-person shooter, fighting game, tech, and all that stuff, I'm all for it, man. And other than just staying active, I like to hang out with friends. I like to meet new people, get to know random people. I think it's pretty fun. But then we go to C. What exactly happened to Wonderboy in the last fight? He is usually very good at circling out and staying off the cage. And how did he think he could defend Usman's takedowns if Burns did this to him? So honestly, Wonderboy was trying to get away from the cage. I think there was a moment in the second or third round where he did a very good job of jabbing his way and creating a lot of threats in front of Burns with his hands to get as far away from the cage as possible. But what I will say is Wonderboy had many opportunities to counter or more importantly intercept Burns 
whenever Burns was advancing on him or throwing out some big punch. Burns would throw out something big, and there would be times where Steven Thompson just like allows it and moves away. But when he moves away from shots, being the counter striker that he is, he's naturally going to get closer to the cage. But the fact that Burns is also very quick for a welterweight, he's going to be able to get Wonderboy closer to the cage than most other fighters. Because Wonderboy is going to have to respect that speed. But here's the thing, man, about Wonderboy. For some reason, he doesn't challenge people in open space like he used to. I highly recommend everybody to go back and watch when he fought Johnny Hendricks and when he fought Rory McDonald. They both try to pressure him to the cage, but he would challenge them in exchanges far more than he does today. Today, he kind of just allows them to move forward. He moves away. He needs to let his hands and feet go a lot more, just like he used to. Look at the Johnny Hendricks fight. So Johnny Hendricks has the wrestling and he has the power in his hands, right? Or at least he had the reputation for the power in his hands. So Wonderboy had a lot of things to respect. He had a lot of things to be kind of hesitant about. Just like Gilbert Burns. Burns has a lot of power and he has the wrestling, jiu-jitsu, all that stuff. But look at like 3 minutes and 30 seconds all the way to like two minutes of that Johnny Hendricks fight for that minute and a half. Look how Wonderboy contests everything Johnny Hendricks tries to do. Johnny Hendricks tries to throw a punch. Wonderboy counters him. Hendricks tries to advance forward. Wonderboy intercepts him. Wonderboy just doesn't allow Hendricks to do anything. But against Gilbert Burns and a bunch of other fighters these days, it might be age, honestly, he just allows them to control the fight far more than he should. And these guys still have the same kind of threats and skills that Wonderboy has fought in the past. Nothing has really changed. I mean, Burns' speed is something to be alarmed about and has to be respected. But still, the skills are there. And Wonderboy should be able to keep up like he did actually in the fight with Gilbert Burns' speed. It's more of a mental thing. That's all it is. He might be respecting them too much. And even against Tyron Woodley, he respected him way too much in those fights. He just didn't let his strikes go and became way too complacent. There's no other way to really explain it other than that. It has to be maybe an age thing, and he's just respecting them way too much. This started ever since he fought Tyron Woodley. But the thing is, Wonderboy doesn't have this tendency to allow himself to get backed up so much when he fights a striker. Look when he fought Vicente Luque. Look when he fought Jorge Masvidal. He did not allow them to control the fight. He was firing out there far more than he was when he fought Tyron Woodley, Gilbert Burns. So we do know that the wrestling is the threat that's getting Wonderboy to back up, or at least to become more tentative of throwing anything at them he doesn't want to get countered or taken to the ground and all that stuff but the thing is he fought Hendricks he fought Rory McDonald two guys that were trying to take him down and pressure him but he didn't fight this way he was still a lot more willingly to throw shots at them and get them to back up away from him but knowing that this is the way that Wonderboy is going to fight it just goes to show you that there was no chance he would beat Kamar Usman he has the skills to challenge Usman 100% if he fights perfectly if you can control Wonderboy with a controller, you can absolutely find a way to beat Kamaru Usman. But that's just not how fighting works. Wonderboy's going to fight his own style and approach the way that he's going to want to approach it. If he fought Kamaru Usman the same way he fought Gilbert Burns, he would have gotten dominated against Usman. And then what a Brian Y. Do you think Dominic Cruz and his physical prime would have a good chance against the current top five? And what are his current chances against them? Or just the champion, not Sterling? So Dominic Cruz and his prime, he was still a bit fragile. When I mean fragile is like, you know, he gets injured all the time. But how does he fight the top five against Cody Garbrandt? He loses. He was pretty much almost in his physical prime when he fought Cody Garbrandt. And he got absolutely shut out. Especially not these days. He's not going to beat him. He always would have and still will always lose to Jose Aldo. When they were thinking about doing that fight back in the day there couldn't have been a worse matchup for a prime Dominic Cruz so he doesn't beat Jose Aldo ever in his prime he could have beaten Rob Font Font has good takedown defense but I don't know if he's able to handle the trickiness that comes with Dominic Cruz's footwork because Rob Font doesn't have the greatest movement his jab would keep Dominic Cruz on notice the whole time but I wonder how Rob Font would deal with the dips 
that would be interesting. So I think a prime Kuz could beat Rafaan. It would be difficult. Today, no, I don't think Kuz beats Rafaan. Corey Sanhagen, prime Kuz beats Corey. Corey doesn't have the greatest wrestling. But today, I think Corey defeats Kuz. Kuz would lose to Patreon back then and now. And I think a prime Kuz would beat Eljamie Sterling, given how easily Sterling gasses out. And that Kuz can just shut down the takedowns and try to outstrike Sterling the whole time. But today, Sterling would beat Kuz. And then we're going to don't hate the flair, hate the game. Why isn't tickling used more in grappling? Seems like it would be an effective way to get the opponent in certain positions. No, man. When adrenaline's rushing, when you're in that kind of an intense environment, I don't think tickling's really going to affect you. And also, instead of occupying your hands by tickling the opponent, you could do something else, man. And also, you're going to leave yourself pretty defenseless. And then what a Jake. Most dominant strike or move in each division. Usman's power jab, Dustin's shift hook, Adesanya's sexual harass. Yeah, that's definitely the most dominant move in all MMA. He created a life for Paulo Costa. I mean, Paulo Costa's never been back since. Paulo Costa's on his paternity leave. So the most dominant technique in the heavyweight division, I would have to say is Stipe's pivot cross. Light heavyweight division, either Jan Blachowicz's left hook, body kick, or Dominic Reyes's pivot cross. The middleweight division... Robert Whitaker's high kick combination. The welterweight division is Usman's jab. The lightweight division, Dustin Poirier's shift is definitely one of them. But honestly, I think Justin Gaethje's leg kicks have become the most dominant strike in the lightweight division. I mean, it's worked on everybody. It's devastated everybody's legs. Then the featherweight division, it's hard to really say, but maybe Max Holloway's jab. It sets up everything he does. Then the bantamweight division, I'm going to go with Piotrion's right straight. Then the flyweight division, either Brendan Moreno's jab or Davidson Figueredo's right cross. Woman's bantamweight, Amanda Nunes's right hand. Woman's flyweight, I mean, like everything Shevchenko does. Counter right hook, left roundhouse, her crucifix position. And then woman's strawweight, I would have to say is Rose Namajunas' footwork. And then we're going to Brendan Wheeze. If you had a chance to take away or modify three rules of the UFC right now, what would they be and why? Big fan. Okay, so I would add soccer kicks. Definitely. That's always something I wanted. It creates more action on the ground. You're able to counter wrestlers. And the cage is not really going to make soccer kicks necessarily too much, you know? Knees to a ground on an opponent and stomps are not the best thing to bring into the UFC because the cage can get your opponent stuck. And this allows you to just stomp away, you know? So the cage is not really going to affect the soccer kicks too much. This also creates highlight reel knockouts. And honestly, can be pretty easily defended. It's not going to be used that often. To get in the position to soccer kick someone, they have to be like crawling at you. They have to have failed on a takedown. Or you have rocked them already, dropped them, and you finish them off with a soccer kick. That part could be relatively dangerous. I don't know though. You can say I'm sadistic, but I love soccer kicks. Legalize 12 to 6 elbows. That needs to be done. Take away the 10-point must system. It makes no sense. Rounds cannot be scored the same way. A 10-9 in one fight is not going to be the same as a 10-9 in another fight. The whole system needs to be completely revamped. Open score would be perfect. I know people will say it would cause one fighter to coast, but it's also going to cause the other fighter to go for it. We would never get an instance where both fighters think they're winning. We've had that so many times in fights where both fighters think they're winning and it becomes kind of a boring fight. And also think about this. Let's say each fighter won two rounds and it's going into the fifth. Both fighters know they have to win this round no matter what. That's going to cause some excitement from the fans that they know that's what's going to happen here. Both fighters are even going into the fifth and the fighters are just going to go at it. That would be amazing. And cheating needs to be reinforced. Poking the eye and low blows should be an automatic point deduction. Grabbing of the glove, the cage, or of the shorts should be met with a warning the first time, second time is point deduction. If it caused a change of position, you gotta reposition them back. Because it seems like these days, man, that's not even happening. I, I think it is a rule, but it needs to be reinforced. And then we go to Shai. 
If Connor stayed active over the years, how would you see him doing in the division today? Love the content, bro. Thank you so much. So this is a very interesting question. As we know, Connor has not been the most active fighter. Five fights in the last five years. And two of those have been in the last year or so. If Connor fought two to three times a year, ever since he beat Eddie Alvarez, that would mean he would have at least 10 fights after the Alvarez fight. Imagine Connor fighting 10 times since 2016. And that's the bare minimum. There's a possibility he could have had 15 fights since 2016. He definitely would have been way better than he is now. He definitely would have lost 100%. He would have lost to somebody. But with that, he would have grown and become a better fighter. There would have been many more big fights as well. But it's really hard to say how he would compete because a Conor who has experienced 10 fights or 15 fights ever since 2016 is such a massively different situation than where he's at right now. We have no idea how he would even look. We have no idea what he would have fixed in his game and where he would have gotten better and how much better he would have gotten. What additions to his game would he have brought? What would he have removed? Would he have been with the same coaches? Would he have moved with someone else? Things would have been so different. If Connor would have fought May after that Eddie Alvarez fight, he would have fought Habib. He would have fought Tony Ferguson. He would have fought Poirier eventually. He would have fought Justin Gaethje. He probably would have fought Hava Dos Anjos. Possibly Dan Hooker. It's almost impossible to really know and say how he would have competed with these guys. It's very hard to know. Back in the day, I would say that Habib would have beaten Connor because that was most likely going to be his first title defense as the lightweight champion. I think Tony Ferguson would have beaten Connor. Due to his durability for the most part, he would lose the first two rounds 100%, but his chin was so good. He was almost like a DS 2.0 with more power, faster. He throws kicks and all that stuff. Connor would have drowned in a fight with Tony Ferguson. A fight with Alva Dos Anjos would have been interesting, right? Justin Gaethje, warmo Justin Gaethje. I think Connor would have beaten him. Dustin Poirier, you know, years back, probably Connor beats him too. Paul Felder went up there in a moment. Like, there would have been a lot of great fights for Conor McGregor. He would have changed drastically. Definitely would have been better than he is today. And then we go to Moist Penguin. Do you think Herb Dean was aware of McGregor cheating against Habib and Poirier and he just simply chose to ignore it because it's Conor McGregor? I don't want to put my uh, tinfoil hat on, but there is something fishy about that. You cannot go and tell me he did not see Conor grabbing his glove that whole time. Look at Herb Dean. I have the image right here. How does Herb Dean not see Conor grabbing his glove? Like, it's right there in plain sight. And the worst one was with uh, Habib. There are so many instances that Herb Dean even warned Conor McGregor for. And he tried to explain why he didn't take a point away. And it made no sense. Conor fouled so many times in that fight. He should have probably even been disqualified. I mean, the knee to the grounded opponent alone deserved a point deduction. That alone without looking at the amount of times he grabbed Habib's glove. Grabbed his shorts. Grabbed the cage. There's something going on when Herb Dean refs McGregor's fights. Definitely something that Eddie Bravo has to look into. And then we're going to furlough. Was Conor lucky to break his leg considering he was likely going to lose the fight? Yeah, man, if you think about it that way, like a blessing in disguise, I guess. I mean, at least at this point, people are still going to be somewhat interested in another fight because they'll just say, you know, one round passed. There was a lot more to go. And McGregor broke his own leg. And it turns out, no, Dustin did not check a kick. He did not block a kick with his elbow. And other than that, McGregor has more time now to recoup think about what's going on, and fix his mental state because he's looking a lot more desperate and insecure these days. And that's the end of the podcast, guys. So I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. If you did, make sure to give it a like, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you listen to the audio version of this. And I'll see you guys in the next video.